Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. And we are back in the home studio here in Houston, Texas. That's right. Sunny, breezy. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. We're so glad you're back for another episode. And if you're a new listener, welcome. We hope you enjoy our back catalog, as it were. Does it sound very official? (laughs) Uh, Almost coming up on our 52nd episode, which tells me since we've done about one a week that we've we've Mm -hmm. been at it about a year, which is very exciting. That's right. Milestone. I know. And we recorded our very first episode down here in Texas as we were scoping out the area before we made the move. Just a matter of maybe like a mile from here, roughly, where your mother lived. Yep. So that was, it's been a family affair from the start. So um, we hope you enjoyed last week's episode. It was actually audio from one of our classes. Of course, we're, we're trying to give people a little bit of a preview of what those classes are about, but it was our tool pruning primer. And mm-hmm. um, hopefully there was some detailed information there that was kind of a deep dive for our listeners. Right. If you like any format or dislike any format, we're very receptive to feedback. If you mm-hmm. want more of something, we're we're more than happy to roll that into pr- our production schedule. So contact us, let us know. There's information at the end of the episode that for how to get in touch with us if you're not already following us on social media. Right. So of course there's actually we do have a YouTube channel. It's under King Garden in the landscape. Uh, so King Garden being our landscape design firm, in the landscape being our, you know, sort of media production situation here. And the tool episode is available as a visual sort of PowerPoint, but we thought it might on make, YouTube. Yeah, right. on our YouTube channel. So, you know, subscribe, rate, review. And of course, the visual is a nice accompaniment to that audio. So hopefully the audio you could follow it. There was information. Full disclosure, we didn't want to take a week off, but we've also been very busy developing, not just for our online class content, but for a couple of talks, you're giving a full day pruning. The company we're working with has branded it a Pruniversity. Oh, right. Which is so, <laughs> so clever. I love it. Uh, not our trademark, but theirs. But uh, yeah, That's good to just share briefly the company. They specialize in, in professional continuing education. So many mm-hmm. professionals architects, landscape architects, engineers, arborists need to con- take continuing ed to stay licensed. So whether it's a pretty big need. And so you could go in your local community and there's also regional and national companies that do continuing education that you pay, you, you would pay anyways. And so mm-hmm. it's in this world, this class was going to be in person in the Houston area. And now it's going to be as a webinar. And so that's with Half Moon Education. If any of our listeners are actually looking for you know, continuing education. They're not a sponsor of the show, but you're going to be teaching for them. So there's no no reason not to mention them by name. And they're in the Midwest. uh, And they've been great to work with and and interested in putting together quality educational content. So it's definitely, even though it's moving online, it's not lacking in sort of rigor and detail and and accreditation standards. And they're actually, they're a nonprofit. So I mean, their mission is... I was chatting with the the man I, I interfaced with there, and the, he said the founders, it's a couple. And I mean, their mission is to to deliver high-quality education at a reasonable price. That's great. And they do. I mean, it's... Because it can be a, a big burden. I mean, you are required to keep up this continuing education. And as we know, being in business for ourselves, especially in the landscape industry, things can be seasonally rough. 
things can be right. <laughs> rough for a year or even a couple of years while you try to keep your business going. And yet the standards for continuing ed don't, don't diminish. And so it's nice that that's a, a mission of this particular company. And, and I think others, I mean, it's often universities and extension, mm-hmm. cooperative extensions that offer the continuing ed. So it's, it's a nice, that's just a nice ethos. From it's social too, whether it's online or in person, you see colleagues mm-hmm. and it's fun to see what other people are doing. Like yeah. I took one of Half Moon's courses in New Orleans and there was an architect there. Some people would travel to, I probably traveled further than most people. And so this gentleman was an architect in the, it was a tree course. It was an, he was an architect in the New Orleans area. And his specialty was restoration of, of religious buildings, of churches and other. So taking classes, there was another person that worked with the Army Corps of Engineers on the dams. And he's part of the recovery from the hurricane. And so it was just fun to get, get up close. And there was another person at another conference that was a specialist in, in zoos. The programming. I mean, so there's the animals, the plants, the social, the people. So I, I suppose we miss out a little bit on that in the webinar format. There, there doesn't tend to be as much of an opportunity for networking, but hopefully there's some, maybe even taking down the names of the people that you see and seeing if you mm-hmm. can connect with them on LinkedIn, if there's that shared interest. Just an idea. Um, and there's a chance in the webinars to submit questions. And, and that is true. There's a dialogue or a chat. Yes. So someone could say, oh, I'm from this organization. You know, here's a website for more, for more. So actually, today's episode is not about continuing education, but we wanted to let you know what we've been up to and explain the little bit of a format change from last week. Today's episode is really about public gardens and from the perspective of, so we've, we've done an episode on volunteering and how to get kind of connected with your local gardens, if that's of interest. Uh, volunteering may look a little different right now. Of course, a lot of us volunteer because we want to get in the dirt in these amazing spaces, Mm -hmm. but your local garden may still need assistance with, you know, social media or working on their next campaign. So if you were considering volunteering your time, if, you know, I I don't know, time is weird right now. (laughs) Sometimes it feels (laughs) like I have a lot. Sometimes it feels like I have none at all, but do consider still maybe reaching out. Because the need might be in some institutions, it might be even higher than normal. I mean, many people are working, paid employees in many industries are, are furloughed or working part-time budgets. It's hard to fundraise when you're not physically open and you can't meet. Mm-hmm. So the need for volunteering, even working part-time might be increased. Might still be there, yeah. Uh, my mom, I know, is still getting out to the John Ferry Garden when she's on her, it's on her own and she's in a greenhouse by herself. So there's social distancing in place still. <laughs> Repotting aloes, I want to say. Like oh, a ton neat. of aloes that were donated to Those the, grow so quickly. Yeah, they were donated to the... Um, and they create, I'm not garden. sure if it's called pups, but with some of these plants, like a banana, when it sprouts another, it's called a pup. Oh, so it's like yeah. all the repotting of the, the vegetation. And so that's been a big bright spot, I would say, in this time of kind of a big change in what she thought would be her schedule. So the through line of today's discussion will really be about some of the organizational considerations that we need to think of if we're involved in public gardens in, in, a, in a certain way. You've done some really interesting research. You got to do an interview. Mm-hmm. You had a great chat with Scott Stewart, who's the director at Millennium Park in Chicago, which is really, I mean, it's one of the premier public horticultural institutions in, in the U.S. 
And so he won't be on air with us today, but you'll kind of talk through some of the things you've learned from him, because essentially mm-hmm. what this is all about is a project that you're doing in, uh, in New York to help the, with the restoration of the Hammond Museum Japanese Stroll Garden. I think right. I have that correct. <laughs> so, correct. Um, if there are a lot of elements to this. But it is a project that you were sort of recruited to participate in. And it's this really wonderful opportunity. Of course, we have, I'm sure we have listeners in the industry. So they may also be interested in participating at this level in this way. Right. With gardens that, you know, maybe are in danger of of not being preserved. And, Mm -hmm. And what do we do? How do we preserve them? But then once we start down that road, just how much is involved? There was a landscape contractor in the Hudson Valley, and I shared a post. The Hammond Museum is so pretty. It's in North Salem, so it's the northernmost part of Westchester County, which is a New York City suburb. And part of it is on the Hudson River, so it's it's a temperate hardwood forest. You have like maples, oaks, beech. You know, it's and it's hilly. It's very pretty. So this contractor, when he saw the post, he said, "Oh, that garden is meaningful to me. I've gone there over many years. I'd like to donate some of my services if you need." tree pruning, removals. So just by sharing, I mean, he has such a love for the place and he has the infrastructure. He has the manpower and the equipment. And so to donate a day or so, would, it would be worth thousands of dollars. And for him, it probably wouldn't, it wouldn't cost him thousands of dollars. And so that's pretty, people are quite you know, open-hearted when you share your enthusiasm for a subject. It often People come out of the woodwork and, oh, I'd be willing to help. I'd like to do this. This is what I can contribute. So if you're brought on to a project like this, now we, you're working with some amazing people on the board and they have done the work of like applying for grants. Mm-hmm. So grant applications can be pretty challenging, but if you have the requirements and good examples and somebody on your team who writes well, you know, as long as you follow the application guidelines, make sure you sort of dot your I's and cross your T's. You just want to get through the process, but in a systematized way. And then, Mm -hmm. and then it's not impossible. And then, you know, as long as you are showing a real commitment to the project, like with or without the grant, this project will happen. We're reaching out to see if you want to fund the project in addition to our other fundraising efforts, then organizations really often feel that sense of buy-in that, that mm. you're not wholly dependent on them or it's never going to get off the ground because then, you know, they may wonder how committed you are. This comes from my work in the performing arts. And so grant writing is, you know, bread and butter there. So there are some things to consider in terms of grant writing. You can always hire a professional grant writer. We didn't do the grant for this because the board did and then brought you in as a consultant, essentially. Right. So when it comes to assessing a garden and the level of renovation, what are some things you would consider? What do you start to think about? Well, let's see. The early conversations with some of the board members was, goes back to what's the program. So the garden was designed, the owner of the property and the designer was, was uh, Natalie Hammond. And she worked in, in performing. She was on, like a set designer on Broadway, quite, quite successful, built this more or less like a a state country home and designed and had constructed a Japanese garden. So the program, if the program doesn't meet the current uh, uses, it doesn't work. People don't go to it. It's too cold. It's all shady. It's too hot. It's too sunny. There's nowhere to sit. <laughs> we want to have a musical performance, maybe Japanese uh, musical instruments. There's no place to, to set that up. 
So that was some of the early discussions of there's this existing infrastructure, and some of those are plants, a pond, beautiful stonework, beautiful historic plants. There's so there's sort of the physical, and then there's the social of how do you how do you want to use this? And I'm not a programming expert at all, but I know places like Millennium Park are so successful because the programming is incredible. It's as incredible as the landscape architecture and the horticulture. So we really talk through, and I give examples of other public gardens that I'm aware of, other Japanese public gardens, how they, they are programmed, and that the programming can be very broad. It could be an arts and crafts festival. you know. So there's maybe Japanese ceramics, but others too. So how can you get people to visit? So the horticulture really has to support that. So it sounds like a really special person created the garden and um, and then gave it over to be viewed by the public, which mm-hmm. is an, a common, relatively common progression, these estates becoming gardens. We may address that toward the latter part of the episode. But I'm mindful of the legacy of an artist and, and trying to, as, as we go to gardens like John Ferry and others, to what extent do you, as the restorer, I mean, you're not trying to do a, a precise historical recreation, but how much do you research the original intent? And yes, a public program, it may be very different from a private program. Mm-hmm. So things are necessarily going to change, but how much of the spirit do you try to honor of the original creator? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a very good point. I think we've talked in previous episodes. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, it's like a high, there's a level of spirituality and finding out what was the design intent? Sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's not. Things could get overgrown. Maybe things, plants passed away, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there is certainly <laughs> things that Things deteriorated. Mm-hmm. So finding out what was the original design intent, if you're going to try to restore something, you should know what that was because it might not be obvious. Like Millennium Park, the design intent is everything should be at a high level of excellence, whether it's a sculpture, a performance, everything. So the finding out what the design intent. So for the Hammond Museum, there are original plans, which exist from, from Natalie Hammond's time, which was, it was, it was created in, in 1957. So it's, so the plants that have survived and thrived are beautiful. You know, some of these old, the, some of these old cryptomeria, which are a Japanese cedar that are just like you see in a, in a Japanese artwork. It's mm-hmm. very vertical with these pads of foliage. That's just how they look as they age. And then at the Hammond Museum, there's been rounds or iterations of other designers throughout its time that have done different planning and research. And unfortunately, not too much of that, to my knowledge, has been implemented. I mean, these projects that we work on, where we see that, where there's been designers that came before us, whether it's public or private. I mean, the design process, it can be so enjoyable that it's, in my humble opinion, one can lose focus. Is this what can we implement in the short term? What can we, like with a residential client, client we often say that. Well, like, and it's so important because budgeting, whether you're a private individual, even if you have, you know, a lot of wealth. Let's not say unlimited wealth because then you really can do anything. But but even then, there are different priorities for how you're going to implement things. And it takes time, and, though. and stuff has to happen in stages. It cannot in most cases, happen all at once. And right. you, you become overwhelmed by kind of this monolithic project. And so the practicality just isn't there. Even, even when the designs are really quite good, 
then mm-hmm. it's not being thought through. It's not just the programming of the garden once it's complete, but programming the changes as they're going to happen, whether it's construction in your backyard uh. or <laughs> like, what are you going to do for a museum that is going to continue to have guests visiting? How disruptive is that implementation going to be? You know, that occurred, uh, reminds me, the Portland Japanese Garden. Mm-hmm. And so they did, a, I mean, I would call it an epic renovation. Yeah. They have... I mean, more, more or less one of the top architects in Japan did these beautiful buildings that are sort of evocative of, of a tea house, tea garden up in the mountains in Japan, but they're also very cutting edge contemporary. So it was a very large project. They had stonemasons. I mean, they're chipping stone and making stone walls right on site. Uh, I think some of the craftspeople came from Japan for a, like quite a period, of, like definitely many months, maybe even years to construct it. The garden remained open in part. The, the traffic pattern, they had to change. The way you enter the garden, I remember that it was, it was quite laborious. Mm. Yeah, our first visit there was while right. this was being constructed. And then I think you went back after it was completed, which was exciting. And I, and I do recall the experience was one of excitement because I didn't feel I was being kept from the garden I could tell that something was being constructed. And yes, you had to wend your way sort of up this hill, Um, (laughs) which also reminds me, we hiked to the top of Multnomah Falls, I think, on that visit as well. It was quite quite a lot of hiking up, straight up. But um, I think you can sort of be creating a sense of of anticipation for what's Mm -hmm. to come, but not this sense of an exclusion, because it may be your only visit to the garden you just because you happen to be visiting, you know, New York for that one time, but that's not where you live. And and for us, this Portland area, we we love going back. We were going to go this summer, but we are not. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so it would have been nice to go see it, but but you know it's there and it's been finished, and and you just weren't you weren't denied your own experience because you weren't going to be there for this big unveiling. I guess. I think I shared that with the Hammond Museum. Know, stakeholders, like as the garden is going through the process, that it's valuable. I and mean, this is done with social media and public television. The story can be told of what you're doing. Oh, so yeah. it can be a kiosk. These trees that have fencing around it, we're protecting these trees mm-hmm. during construction. And here's why that's important. Yeah. And the stormwater, when it rains during construction, you have to put things in place. That's why this is here. Yeah, the Houston Botanic Gardens Twitter is one I follow. And they are doing a huge renovation, huge renovation. Oh, right. We saw a little bit of that, right? And so you're following their progression. Like you can't necessarily visit. It's not complete. And I I certainly don't know what their hours are at the moment, given current conditions. But it's it's really this, you really feel invested in the process and excited Mm. again to visit when the time is right. You can make it a destination. So that that programming in that sense is also important. And then I think you avoid, as you've said, the pitfalls of having a grand plan, but not being able to kind of implement it. It's the art of implementation that I'm by no means like an expert at that, but having some construction experience and horticultural experience, like knowing what things are going to cost. And so, boy, it'd be nice to have the Hammond Museum. There's the main house that's a Beaux-Arts classicism. Then there's a Japanese garden. So boy, to my, as a designer's eye, it'd be nice to have separation. So you don't lose the specialness of the Japanese garden from this like more or less like European style home. 
So, so you're not going to take the long view approach and tell them to <laughs> tear down the house and rebuild it to match the garden. <laughs> Maybe if I was, it was compelling, like uh, like Ellen Shipman, <laughs> Puss in Boots. Yes. So fencing or hedging, that's going to be many thousands of dollars. And so just having that conversation, boy, this would be valuable. And so maybe that's like a targeted campaign. Mm-hmm. And so the, there are donors everywhere. And so you don't know who a donor could be. They might not be someone that's independently wealthy, but maybe at that point in their life, they would like to you know, donate a large sum of money that would be part of their legacy. Well, and it's important to think through whether this is like the, t- the turn you want your career to take, because we have sort of those of us who are practitioners of an art form or a craft may see ourselves as starting our own company so we can kind of do things the way we want to. And by company, I mean even like a performing arts organization. But Mm -hmm. then you find you become an administrator and not so much a practitioner anymore. Mm -hmm. You're hiring the people that are going to perform in the concert. Or, you know, my father was the center director for the National Patuxent National Wildlife Refuge in in Maryland. Maryland. Yeah. And uh, he was a research scientist for the majority of his career and then this was an opportunity in a good way to become the supervisor of scientists. So he understood mm-hmm. the work that they needed to, you know, their temperament and the work that they were trying to accomplish. And he could advocate for them. But, you know, he had a desk job. Like, that's what it became. And he would put on a tie. You mm-hmm. know, he'd have to go before. He'd have to go to Congress. Congress, right. This <laughs> is, this is our budget. On. We want this. Yeah, basically advocating for those programs. So it can either be a perfect fit if you have that interest. Or it can really sap your ability to spend time in the field doing what you love, you know. And oh, Scott, Scott Stewart from Millennium Park, the director, he spoke to that, that his day-to-day, I mean, like many people, like in the trenches, he's, you know, phone calls, meetings, doing spreadsheets, how, what's the rollout, the logistics, the planning, there's outside contractors, there's, it's public-private, so there's donors. And then it's, there's the Parks Department of Chicago. So he said, it's all worth it when you see when there's a beautiful symphony performance or when children are splashing in the water or when the beautiful planters, people are studying those and people are on their lunch break and they have you know 20 minutes of stress-free beauty. And so that it's, I guess, having, having a, vision, a mission and a vision can keep you in the game because it, uh, it is challenging. <laughs> Well, and this may or may not apply to the Hammond Museum, but I do think that's another consideration. Maybe you, some of your conversations, you can speak to this, but how do you make sure the turning of a public garden, that it is truly public? So a lot of these are estates, which means they may be in some rarefied you know, estate location on the Hudson River, which is not accessible to people dependent on public transportation, for example. So if it's not like a city park, is there a way to make it sort of a part of like an equitable oh, you know, very good point. outdoor experience? Yeah, the, the equitable landscape that professor I had at Syracuse, uh, Thaisa Way, who's at Dumbarton Oaks now. I mean, that's who uh, Scott Stewart had worked with her. I think he might have written a, like a foreword to a book. So the equitable landscape, can everybody use it? That means everybody, people with different mobility, with people urban people, rural people. So the Hammond Museum, it occurs to me, a shuttle from the railroad, which is a Metro North commuter railroad, so you could go from New York City or further up Hudson, there could be infrastructure and planning in place that 
every Saturday for let's say four hours, there's a, there's an hour sh- hourly shuttle. Yeah, Wave Hill actually has a shuttle. I didn't have a car when I lived in Manhattan. And when I found out that I could take the one train all the way to Van Cortlandt Park, last oh, stop, right. you get off and cross the street. There's a, I think at the time it was Burger King <laughs> and a shuttle for this amazing garden would show up and drive you up the hill into that area of the Bronx, Riverdale. Right. Was that, yeah. Which is a rarefied estate. There was this accessibility that I wasn't, you know, and I was already enjoying like Riverside Park and Central Park, but it was this gorgeous estate with the historical, you know, story of some of the families in the New York state politics and things and Mm -hmm. art installations. I think there was even a musical performance happening outside. Like music is a large part of Wave Hill's programming. Yeah. Yeah, So really diving. So people in public horticulture there's an organization of just of that, of like, pub, like American public horticultural organization, sharing resources, information. You don't necessarily know who your visitors could be. Is it, of course, at the highest level, is it wheelchair accessible? Can people in wheelchairs and with varying mobility visit? Is it child-friendly? And adjustments can be made. Like the Hannon Museum, the main entrance, you go through a small structure, like a small tea house. And there are steps. At the exit, there's a ramp. So immediately I thought, oh, is there a large budget to renovate that initial entrance? Maybe not. But it's a very easy, uh, there could be a sign entrance and then handicap entrance, which is like is five feet to the, you know, to the left. And like really programming, Japanese gardens are often sequential. Mm. So if you, went in the, if you went in the handicap entrance, which is, was the exit, Having that in mind, that's mm. the, a person in a wheelchair or different mobilities, someone with a stroller or with a cane, they're going to experience it. Make sure that they're not experiencing it backwards, mm-hmm. that it's just as so that universal design, it makes the designer, makes the design better for everybody, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, and they say, you know, you can't be all things to all people, but if it's, if it is a public space for the public good, it's a great goal to at least aim in that direction <laughs> to right. make sure that you're, you're being your best public garden self, but for as many people as possible. I, th- I just think that, that that does make a difference. You know, a very large public institution, the Morgan Library. So that was, like, was J.P. Morgan's private collection of, of art. And so it was an estate and they expanded it to have more resources, more programming, more accessibility. And they went down. I mean, it might, it's, 50 or 70 feet underground. So they, the integrity, the architecture remains and they excavate it. So now there's research libraries, cafes, but the original design intent is still maintained. There's always a way. <laughs> so was there anything else from your research so far that you wanted to share with us? Well, let's see. The first step at the Hammond Museum is doing an inventory and analysis. So what plants are particularly special so more or less cataloging and adding, putting a value on what's there. And then maybe there's plants that are in decline that are not an asset anymore. Maybe there's plants that are dangerous. So some of these interventions, maybe there's trip hazards. So there's often immediate steps that one can take where the cost is pretty low, the value is pretty high. And then you can identify, like I said, with screening from the main house in the garden, and there'd be different ways to accomplish that. Well, and we've been mindful of sort of the ecological impact of landscapes and how every 
contribution we make to landscapes can can either enhance or <laughs> detract from the the ecological balance. So is that something that you're going to do in your assessment as well? Like, is it, would it be, are there species that may do better with the, can you get the effect with native species or is it because it is of a particular style, like the English garden, the Japanese garden, it is a style that should employ specific plants. Does that limit you because the plant palette is so rigid? Yeah, very good. I think that is misunderstood. The idea that if you take Japanese plants and you put them in a garden that's a Japanese garden, I would say that is not true at all. There's been uh, great garden designers in America that have written, there's quite, quite a number that have written books. So it's, those, it's really the principles of the Japanese garden, the balance, the asymmetry, the patterns and the paving, the naturalistic pruning style, which it's, there's lots of manipulation. So it's really those principles that could native plants would perform well. Their needs would be less for less irrigation or no irrigation, less or no herbicides or pesticides. So that would be a great, you know, I'd like to that book to bring nature home. So to have plants with that they're providing an ecological function for insects and birds, in addition to that that art and cultural overlay that's and that can be done pretty seamlessly people they wouldn't necessarily even realize this is benefiting the local hummingbirds it's this looks pretty it it could quote unquote feel like a japanese garden now you talked about the hand the hand pruning style is that something you're going to stay involved in long term or would you provide a guide to because we've talked in our practice i mean we do maintenance all the time but in a in a way that we try to make sustainable and beneficial for the plants. Um, was that something that is a concern in Millennium Park? Do people, I don't know, I'm asking like five questions in one, but do people get in over their heads with a design that then wasn't keeping in mind that like volunteers are the ones who are going to have to maintain it? Ah, very good point. So having, as we continue to write, educate, speak, publish, the taking what can be complex information like I'm doing research on topiary now, the history of topiary, the forms. It can be an oral tradition. It's a cultural, it's more or less being passed. I hear a future episode taking shape. <laughs> <laughs> All about topiary in particular. When I study inspiring designers, horticulturalists from the past, there's some that have, that, that have done hardly any writing. And like Ellen Shipman, her correspondence with the clients and the drawings, a lot of that was discarded. It was like, it was private. She felt it was, there was like a client relationship that it, other ones, Beatrix Ferran, Fletcher Steele, every scrap of paper that they worked with through their career, or a lot of them have gone into archives like at Berkeley or Syracuse. So future generations. So, so documenting and writing, and Beatrix Ferran was excellent at that, where she said, this is a, we're at, Princeton's campus, it's a dormitory. There's a pyracanthus firebush, you know, has these beautiful orange berries throughout the winter. Here's how that's going to be espaliered. So that design intent is maintained. I mean, for many generations. It was done, let's say, five generations. It was done a long time ago. And when we've when we have visited, that it's it still has its integrity. Because the plants will come and go. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So that that design intent, and so it can be as simple as a drawing, a description. I guess it, 
and on knowing your audience too. So the average person is not going to be able to read a landscape plan. You know, what does this symbol mean? <laughs> so having it in everyday language. Great. Well, we're just getting toward the end of our episode. So I'll do my usual and ask if there's anything else you'd like to share with us before we close. <laughs> but I did want to let our listeners know, especially those maybe in the New York area, but anybody on their way to visit there once it becomes possible to do so. If you're interested in more about the Hammond Museum and Japanese Stroll Garden in particular, if you want to follow this renovation, and now mm-hmm. that, you know, as you said, if, if we start to tell the story of it as it comes underway, please visit hammondmuseum.org. And that is H-A-M-M-O-N-D museum.org. So I just wanted to throw that out there because we've talked a lot about it. You can see some of their beautiful blooms as the as the um, spring oh, right. sort of takes Azaleas, the area. dogwoods. Turning into... Quince, many, you know, beautiful culturally significant and rich plants. Yeah. So they've got some beautiful pictures, some lovely text as well to kind of speak through the idea. So is there anything else you wanted to share? Well, let's see. As part of the Hammond Museum, I know the board is reaching out to, there's a Japanese Garden Association of North America. And so that's a resource. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. When we're working locally, there's a network of people that are experts at programming, design, plant sourcing, all those. I have a possible speaking commitment in, Cal- in Southern California in the fall. And so one of the board members reached out to a, ja- a prominent Japanese uh, garden person there. And so I'd like to work that into the travel. And then let's see, at Millennium Park, I remember I asked uh, the director, has the success of Millennium Park had a ripple effect at other parks? And he said, yes. So for people to, businesses, government, to support, whether it's financially or, or in other ways, if you have a proven track record that you put in $1 and you get back $10, let's say, they'd say, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and you put in, it's much more than money too. It's, you know, it's improving lives of people in a city of, of all backgrounds. So I didn't spend much time in it, but adjacent to Millennium Park is Maggie Daly Park. And so when you look at the satellite pictures, Millennium Park is Bose art classicism. When there's also modernism. Maggie Daly Park, there's almost no straight lines. Everything is curvilinear, Michael Van Valkenburg. And that's more or less like one big, you know, child's wonderland. And so the funds, the resources, the motivation to build this more or less family-friendly park came from from the success of Millennium Park. Great. Okay. So I know we like to end with a design principle. So do you have one for us today? Oh, right. The one that we find useful that's a philosophical <laughs> is if you picture a broom where the principle is to let your attention rest on the working surface. So when you're sweeping a broom, the working surface is where the bristles meet the ground. And if you're helping redesign a public garden or reimagine it, it's really uh, working. That working surface would be, what's the program? What are the short-term goals? What can you accomplish today? <laughs> right, correct. <laughs> like just keeping it in the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you know, beautiful to do beautiful plans, drawings, idea boards, renderings. They definitely have a place. The resources and the time for that can be so extensive that, so the working surface is like right now. And there's that principle um, that a Japanese car companies use. When there's like a problem, everybody, whether it's 
it's the company owner, it's the engineer, it's the person on the line. They all go to where that problem's occurring. And they have like what you call like an design to be a charrette. Everybody works out right at that location. And so that's sort of the idea here is, you know, sitting in meetings and boardrooms and doing drawings definitely has a place, but that working surface is right in the garden, creating a beautiful place that people can visit that can have multiple uses. It could be concert and quiet reflection, you know, throughout the four seasons. Great. Well, that's pretty much all the time we have for this episode. And we hope you found something interesting there, whether planning maybe a, an overhaul of your own private garden or getting involved in the public-private partnership or even making a career change and going into management of public spaces from a private career. You know, there's a lot to consider, but a lot of joy and a great benefit to the surrounding community in an ideal sense. And so we hope this has helped spark some some of that thinking for you. Mm -hmm. So we look forward to having another episode next week. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you do get out into the landscape, whether in your homes with your own plants or out in a park sometime soon. We know how restorative it's been for us during this time. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.